It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Season 2 of Sports Legends of the Carolinas. I'm your host, Scott Fowler, sports columnist for the Charlotte Observer, where I've worked since 1994. And as always in this podcast, I'm traveling across the Carolinas, seeking out some of my favorite sports legends to hear the stories behind their rise to iconic status. If you haven't checked out Season 1 yet, go back and take a listen. We were fortunate to sit down with legends like Steph Curry, Dale Earnhardt Jr., Roy Williams, Jay Billis, and Dawn Staley. For this episode of Sports Legends, we're in Charlotte inside our podcast studio, and I'm delighted to have Cedric Cornbread Maxwell sitting across from me. Getting the ball to Maxwell, and Cedric Maxwell called Cornbread after a movie puts UMCC out in front the best basketball player in UNC Charlotte history. 45 years ago, Cornbread Maxwell was a March Madness mainstay. He led the 49ers to their one and only Final Four appearance in 1977, and then became a first-round NBA draft pick. With the Boston Celtics, he was an essential player on teams that won NBA championships in both 1981 and 1984, and he was the MVP of the 1981 NBA Finals. The Celtics retired his jersey number in 2003. Level blocked from behind by Maxwell. Maxwell's doing it all. Tipped up that time and Cedric Maxwell just having a great game. Maxwell is now the radio analyst for the Celtics, but he still lives in Charlotte during the NBA offseason. Cedric Maxwell, next on Sports Legends of the Carolinas. Cedric, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, man. It's a, a great introduction. Thinking about Charlotte and, you know, going back and, and to be here and to, uh, you know, be at UNCC to see that school rise to prominence was, uh, it, it was surreal. I bet. And you were a member of their inaugural Hall of Fame class, I believe, uh, in the last year or two yeah. when that began. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get to those those days in 1977, where I know some of your teammates at least have told me that y'all really should have won the national championship, <laughs> that you got robbed uh, in God, the semis, right? Got holes, man. <laughs> we, we we really did, but you know, it was. We look back on it, and the moments of just getting there, to think that our program was one of the first programs ever to be, you know, initially to be such a small school to get that far. And uh, to almost win it and beat the actually beat the number one con- number one team in the country that year was was pretty fascinating. It's amazing, really. I mean, and, and we see how hard that is because it's been forty five years 
since then, and they have never really come close. It's so difficult to get to a Final Four. You have to have an incredible Especially run. if you were a smaller school. Sure. You're, you're not getting the yeah. Cedric Maxwells too often. Yeah. Well, the Cedric Maxwell came here just by chance. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Cedric Maxwell was, was uh, I guess, the playing basketball in Kinston, at Kinston High School, was uh, pretty fascinating, the fact that uh, I was a junior. Uh, like Michael Jordan, went out for the team, and I got cut. Really? Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I got cut from the team. As uh, a junior? As a junior. How tall were you? I was about 6'3 and a half, and um, it just didn't feel like I was good enough. And my mom, who used to play basketball at North Carolina Central, she played uh, played college basketball, you know, thought I was a good player. Asked the coach. He was like, well, Miss Maxwell, I don't think so. And... um, then the next year, I think I was I, that during that year after he cut me from the team, I was uh, I was in this physical education class. He was a PE teacher, and uh, he watched me play a little bit. And he asked asked me questions, and he's always watching me when I was playing basketball. And I was like, okay. And then finally, he brought me over. He said, "Can you dunk?" And I'm like, "I never have tried it." And he gave me the ball. And I dunked. Can you do it with two hands? I said, I never tried it and went and did it. And then he asked me um, later on, um, he said, uh, you're, you're coming out for the team, you know, again next year. As a senior. Uh, as a senior. I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> he said, why? I said, you just cut me. Why would I come back out for the team? But, but lo and behold, during that time, between my junior year and my senior year, I grew like four inches. So I came back, I was about six, seven and a half uh, when I came back and um, we played and we ended up playing against Phil Ford, uh, a guy, and, and we ended up beating them. And uh, it was just it just kind of fascinating to be in, in high school back then at that time. So Kinston High School is what we're talking about, eastern part of the state. Mm-hmm. Integrated at that time? Integrated, um, yeah. Uh, played against a guy named... Uh, then I was like one of the tallest guys in the eastern part of the state, and I played against a guy named Jeff Crompton, who went to end up in the going to Carolina, and um, in the East West All Star game, and um, I played I, I played so well that I was the most valuable player again in a, a tournament because of those moments and, and, and they always say about you know for most people who are in sports. Either you're afraid and you're afraid to make yourself, then you become good because you're afraid to fail. And um, that was one of the stories that was told to me. It's like, um, I asked Roy Williams about this and I was introducing myself. He's like, oh, I don't need to know. I I know you already. When I was under Dean Smith, we had something called the cornbread run. I was like, what's that? He said, he, he made sure we were never going to miss out on any other players in the state because we didn't know who you were. Even Sports Illustrated said it about me. I was one of the last uh, great unknown players to come to college because you fell through the cracks. Yeah, well, there was no, there was no, you know, all yeah. the stuff that goes. You weren't on playing now. AAU. No, there was no AAU. There was no. AAU. There was no AAU. So you played in your neighborhood and you played yeah. in your county and and pretty much that. And the was East it. West All Star Game would have been that's a North Carolina game. You made yeah. that one. Yeah. And it's so that would have been like the summer after your senior year. Yes, you already played, committed at that point. Yes, to played in Greensboro. Yes, and, uh, still have that. People mm-hmm. did not know who I was, and then I played this game, and everybody's like, 
are you committed? Are you committed? And yeah. I had already committed to come to Charlotte, but actually I wanted to go to East Carolina University, oh. which was right in my backyard. Oh, that would have made sense. Yeah, sure. right in my backyard. They didn't launch it And no, what they did, they offered me a partial scholarship, <laughs> okay. which they later on regretted. I would imagine. Let's back up for a second. Tell me about growing up in Kinston. All I remember is fun. All I remember is love. Uh, I grew up in the, uh, a segregated town where there were those uh, water fountains which were white and areas where you were colored and, uh, you know, doctor's offices, you couldn't go in. I just remember being in just a, a very loving environment. You know, I had my parent, I had my mom and, uh, and my grandparents and, you know, eventually my dad and, and I, I just... I just remember being um, just a kid, just you know, just being so much love around me. That's all I remember. You grew up in a in a African American section of town where you rarely saw white people, or did didn't. You? The only time I saw white people was when I uh, went with my grandmother, and my grandmother cooked for a white family, the Suttons, who were very who were very affluent, and so when. She would take me to their house, but I had to dress up like I had my white shirt on and have my black pants on. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, she was taking taking her, her grandson up there. And so that that was my first introduction really to, uh, you know, to white people, hmm. uh, to, to Caucasians. It was just like, whoa. And, yeah. and it was just a it was just a different lifestyle. It was a, a different you're going across the tracks between the, the neighborhoods. It was and, literally across the tracks. Literally across the tracks. And so you found out not too long ago something uh, kind of a blockbuster, I guess, about your own heritage. You took a DNA test. What did that DNA test show and uh, how did that change your life? Well, well, a little perspective on it. The DNA test was about a young woman I went to school with and um, I ended up, she ended up telling me that, you know, I had a child that was, was born uh, that was mine, and uh, that was 40 years ago. And uh, so she called me. I was with some buddies of mine, and we were playing cards in, in actually in Boston. And I was like, what? And so she told me the story. So to make a long story short, ended up taking a DNA test and uh, found out that the young lady in, in question was not mine, uh, was not my child, and um, was telling my sister, my sister Lisa, and uh, I was like, Lisa, you know, I just want to let you know, I took a paternity test. And without missing a beat, my sister, my younger sister said, oh, so you can find out who your real father was. Huh? What? <laughs> what did <laughs> you say? And then so the rest kind of spilled out and ended up finding out that uh, I actually was adopted by my dad later on, Manny Maxwell, married Bessie, Bessie Folks at that time. My original name was Cedric Bryan Folks. And um, but you can't find any records of it because those records are sealed in Raleigh. So really? they, they closed all that stuff up and just re and asked my mother about it. So when I found out, I asked her and um, my mother's a jolly jokester. And, you know, she's like, oh, Cedric, you know, and then she told me who he was. His name was the Ford Small and uh, he lived in South Carolina. And ended up finding out had other extended family. Uh, I have a brother, Reggie, uh, who is 6'8 also. 
I have a brother, Tim, who's about 6'4", and I have a sister, Kay, who I just met four years ago. She's about 5'11". So the Ford's people were, the Ford was about 6'4". And so uh ended up finding out that Reggie uh, folks, Reggie, excuse me, Reggie Small, uh, ended up playing in Furman, at Furman University. I remember asking my mother about it, and she said, uh, I said so when were you going to tell me this story? And she's a jolly jokester, and she said, I was going to get around to it. <laughs> so here she and was. how old is she here, now? We, here she's 87, <laughs> and this okay. when she was 84. She was going to get around to tell get around me. to it. All right. So she it was, was working up to it. Yeah, yeah, I'm working up. <laughs> when I get to St. Peter, I'll, you know, I'll give you a shout-out then. And at this point, uh, DeFord Small had already passed away. Right? DeFord Small had not passed away. I I had a chance. I no. Well, got another story. When my mother told me, she said, "I said I never met him," and she said, "No, you did. Like I did. Yeah, you met him about eight times. Eight times. Yeah. Last time you you met him, he were thirteen, and he came to the house. I said, but you didn't tell me who he was." (laughs) I was thinking to help me. I was thinking to help me, but he passed away. I never had a chance really to talk to him as I knew him as my biological father until later on. But something happened at UNC Charlotte one time, which was kind of jogged my memory a little bit. Remember uh, one of the equipment managers saying, your father's here to see you. And I'm like, Manny is in Kinston right now. I just talked to him. So it could have been, the Ford could have been in the stands at UNC Charlotte watching me play because he ended up asking my mother, my mother t- did tell me that one part that he's like, well, Bessie, uh, you know, um, is this your son, our son up here at, at in Charlotte right now tearing it up? And it was like, yeah. Well, did you ever think about telling me, uh, telling him about me? And she said, uh, well, did you ever give him any money? You ever support him? He's like, no. And she said, well, that's your damn answer then. <laughs> that's your damn answer. So I'd never wow. met him. And, and when I finally found out who he was, after she told me, um, I tried to contact him. I wrote him a letter. And by then he was he was ill and he passed away before I could meet him. What a blockbuster for your, uh, yes. in your 60s to... Yes. Uh, Although you, as you mentioned off there, you had a really great relationship with your Manny Maxwell, who you consider yes, your father, yes, I'm sure. Yes. How tall was he? Manny was six feet tall. Okay. So I always thought something was a little unusual with me yeah. being six eight, my brother being about six feet tall, and my your sister, mom? but my mom is tall for a woman. She's five eleven. Uh but uh but yeah. still six eight. So how did you end up getting to UNC Charlotte, Cedric? Um, it was just they offered me a scholarship. And uh, I said, I wanted to go to ECU. And there were some more schools around North Carolina that asked me to come, smaller schools. Lenore Ryan was one of them um, because Bobby Hodges at that time was, uh, he was from Kinston. He was a coach at Lenore Ryan. And uh, he wanted me to come there desperately. And I went up there and I had, uh, I always remember having breakfast. And they gave me like a couple of pieces of Burnt toast and some bacon and and an egg that was cold. And I was like, I'm not coming here. (laughs) 
that with you. Then I visited UNC Charlotte on a visit, and I went to that cafeteria. Everybody says you're being so, you know, one meets you to the dean and this, that, and the other. I love that kind of how people say that. And I go to the cafeteria that first day, and I'm in there eating. Man, the food was great. I was like, man, that was good. Coach was asking me. He said, uh, you, you want some more? I was like, yeah. He said, it's all you can eat here. What? What do you mean? <laughs> what do you was that mean? The so that the was, I, I, they, uh, I, I told people, I said, that sold me on it. Other than the beauty of the school, I loved it. But I'm telling you, the, the cafeteria definitely kind of pulled me over to the side. We'll be back right after this. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back. And it was your senior year that y'all made the final four. But I think you mentioned in a story when we were, I was doing a story on Lee Rose's passing and we spoke on the phone last year and you told me a story I'd like you to tell here again, if you would, the, about the time you, you briefly or almost quit the 49ers mm -hmm. team in, in January of 1976 after a game against Texas Tech, I believe. Yes. One of the, one of the few times I don't think I was successful. And um, Lee went through a whole diatribe about after we lost the game. We were actually in Texas. And um, I think it was Lubbock. Yeah, Lubbock, Texas, I think. And um, they beat us. And we come back to the room. And Lee goes on this whole diatribe about, you know, our guards played well and our forwards played well. And then he went to say, who's the center at North Carolina? Somebody's like, oh, it was this guy. And who's the center at the, this guy? And said, you know what? The center at UNC Charlotte didn't play worth a damn tonight. And I was just like stunned. Was, was this in the locker room? No, this was, was, this was actually at the hotel. Oh. Okay. Hotel afterwards. And I was just, I was mortified. I was mortified. And um, Lee just went off for about, it seemed like a day that he just kept going on and on and on about how poorly I played. And um, finally at the end, he said, well, I'm through. Anybody got any questions? Anybody got anything to say? I put my hand up. I said, I said yeah, okay, what do you have to say? I said, well, you don't like the way I've been playing? I quit. And the room was, <laughs> it like sucked the air out of the room. All my teammates were like, uh -oh. Everybody, oh. all right, Lee. He just he just aced it. Now, what are yeah. you gonna do back? Yeah. yeah. And Lee finally said, "You know, I appreciate your offer and meeting adjourned." And oh, yeah. um, and I walked out of the room. I was I was teary eyed and, and walking down. And and the assistant coaches come busting out. You know, oh, you can't okay. leave my yeah, teammates. Yeah. Oh, no. And but that was that was a a, a point of. Um, of conjecture 
for, for Lee and I. And we never, we didn't, we had a meeting of the minds and we didn't, we ever never talked about it. But because of that, I think that uh, Lee just kind of left me alone then. I had a great time with Lee and, and I, I was, if there's one thing about being invited, uh, being an inductee in, in the UNCC Hall of Fame was uh, Lee wasn't there. And Lee was inducted also. And that's the first thing I talked about. I wish that he had got his flowers during that particular time while he was alive. And so yeah. that was that was that was the one the one kind of down thing for me. Tell me, because everyone refers to you as Cedric Cornbread Maxwell, how the nickname <clears throat> Cornbread came to be. That came from a movie called Cornbread Early Me, which was during the 70s. Um, it was Jamal Wilkes who ended up playing at UCLA was in this movie. Uh, and he played basketball all the time, and he had two little boys who, you know, he befriended. And one of them was name was Earl, and the other one was me. Me was actually Larry Fishburne played that role in the movie. And because I looked like Jamal, some some guys, this guy named Jerry, a guy who I played with, Jerry Winston, who came from New Jersey at the time, said, you look like that guy. Guy named Cornbread. I didn't know what he was talking about. I had no idea. And so we went to uh, Madison Square Garden where we played in NIT in 1976. And so one of them, you know, my teammates again teased me as I was playing well in the NIT. I was the most valuable player and was playing well there. And reporters were just, you know, eating up everything I said. And then one of the my teammates said, yeah, yeah, y'all talking to Cornbread. And the reporter said, ooh, cornbread, cornbread, ooh. And so he started writing that down. He dotted, dotted, dotted. And that's how it started, you know, pretty much from my junior year to record cornbread. So it had nothing to do with you actually liking cornbread. Don't like cornbread at all. You don't like cornbread. I am not in there. I'm a southern boy at heart, but I do I don't like cornbread and I've never had chitlins. So there's certain <laughs> things that I have not you know, I have not eaten or, or I like. I'm just not a cornbread person. Cedric Cornbread Maxwell does not like cornbread. Now, that I did not know. Yeah. yeah. But I knew a little bit about the movie. but And so it it became popular in that NIT, right, What you guys got to the final and got lost. Got to the finals. Got to the, got final, to the final game yeah. and lost to Kentucky. Okay. And in a losing effort, I was the most valuable wow. player. Yeah, even then. And that was, but that was our introduction to the big time. That was my introduction to the big time. All the the teams went to Madison Square Garden. Yeah, all the teams were in Madison Square Garden. So we played, we we beat San Francisco, which they had Bill Cartwright. They had these these great freshmen that were there. We beat them first, and then we beat Oregon. And then we played North Carolina State. Uh, and we had just lost to them. They used to be on our, our schedule. They, you know, they'll bite us up just to beat us. Yeah, yeah. And then I think my last year, my junior year, uh, we they beat us by three points, and they took us off the schedule. <laughs> so right after the game, they're like, well, we will not be playing you anymore. <laughs> That's it. And then we ended up meeting them in the NIT that year, and we beat them. And um, and then we got to the finals against Kentucky, where we lost a heartbreaker, uh, kind of at the end. And um, so that was it. But it was again our introduction to the big time. 
It was my introduction saying that all these guys I'm looking at, they're not as good or I'm better than this guy. I'm better than this guy. Matter of fact, I, I'm one of the best players right now. It made me think of that way. I'm one of the best players in the country. Hmm. And um, all my teammates tease me because of it. Yeah, you think you're big time. But they loved it. That sounds so, like a fun team. Yeah. You're, um, and so in 77, y'all made the Final Four. Uh, you were referenced at the beginning. Beat number one Michigan. Mm -hmm. An enormous win. Maybe the biggest win in school history. Yeah. Defensive stars Staten is already gone. Two of the first five are out of there. And Maxwell, who's putting on quite a show, he is three for three from the line. This is one and one. And he continues to put on quite a show. <laughs> 24 points. Look at the line now. And then you got to the Final Four and played Marquette, a Marquette team that, that mm -hmm. ended up winning the championship. Mm -hmm. And so tell me about the sort of that game and the last play. We were down by two with okay. about eight seconds to oh, go. Okay. And Lee calls the timeout. We're all sitting on the bench. And he's diagramming the play. I said, Coach, no, just give me the ball and get out, have them to get out the way. And I come down, make a move, and I score. We is 49 49. That ties it. Okay. And now it's three seconds to go. So they, they they try a long inbounds pass. My buddy Kevin King again tells me to get back, get back, because they throw it over. I said no. I know I'm going. I'm athletic enough. I know I'm gonna catch this ball if they try to throw it over my head. And he throws it, and I catch it, and uh, Jerome Whitehead hits me from behind, jars the ball loose, goes to dunk it. My recovery was. I don't know how I even got there that quick. I recovered so fast that I was able to block his dunk before he dunked the basketball. The ball hung on the rim, was on the rim, and he actually tapped it in while I was on the rim. It was goaltending, um, and that's how I lost my last college game. I do remember that the thing I remember so well about the final, about playing um, the game against Marquette was after, you know, when they said basket good and my essentially career at that time and, and it was walking off the floor and Dean Smith, they were going to come out. They played the oh, second game, the game and he, he stopped me and he said, you're a great player. And it was it 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 was I, I even hold that to the day. It just it makes me just think like, wow, that was so cool to him just to say that as I walked off, you know, just essentially like in tears. Yeah, yeah because he's got a game coming and yeah. he could have just ignored yeah. you. Yeah. 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 Huh. Um, and then you're drafted by the Celtics, number twelve overall. Mm -hmm. And what was your reaction when you were drafted by the Boston Celtics? And we're gonna have a, a a southern fellow was going to have to go to Boston. Hated it. <laughs> Absolutely hated it. I did not want to go to the Celtics because I did not like the Celtics. I was a Philadelphia fan. But I actually went to go to Atlanta because I wanted to stay in the South and, uh, you know, play in Atlanta. Right, that would make sense. Yeah, it made, sure. made yeah. plenty of sense for me to, you know, be there. And they end up taking with their 
13th pick. Them taking Trey Rollins. Trey Rollins was the 13th yeah, pick. He was in my class. Yeah, yeah, out of Clemson. You're, um, and so the Celtics really weren't good when you first got there. But then uh, they turned it around. They actually, my the, the year I got there in 77, the year before, they were um, played in the Eastern Conference Finals. The year before. And then when I got team. there, all of a sudden, overnight, they became old. They, they still had but, some star power, that, but they weren't. Star power them. wasn't the, the word. They had Hall of Famers, Hall of Famers. but they were just old. Yeah. John Havlicek. He was still on the That team. was my first my my first first year was his last year. Dave Cowens was there. JoJo White was there. Charlie Scott was oh there. Um, Dave Bing, who ended up being a Hall of Famer, they ended up being on that team. I want to say there were at least five Hall of Famers, and guys who had been on the All Star team. Seven guys who had been on the All Star team, but just overnight they became old, dysfunctional, yeah. and I had to go through those two years of. Uh, just oof, plowing through and yeah. and having, I think, five coaches in two years, something like that. I went through a bunch of different things at that time until, you know, we got this some kid from Indiana. French Lick, Indiana. Yeah. yeah. So kid. what was it like playing with Larry Bird? I always tell people what was it like Larry Bird playing with me. <laughs> I mean, I was I was averaging my my when when Larry came in, I had a great scoring year, my my second year in the league. I was averaging 19 points and 10 rebounds a game. So I was, and that was, I I didn't start for the first about five or six games of, of that year, but just gangbusters, playing and scoring almost at will, understanding the NBA game. And um, so when we drafted Larry, they drafted him as a junior, junior eligible. So he went through a whole year that, and then he ended up. I ended up watching Larry play against Magic, and I was hoping Magic killed him at that time. I was yeah. kind of rooting for Magic, yeah. and because well, I was, I was a big cheese. I was a big dog there. Yeah. And uh, we get Larry, and I remember just being this prejudiced black guy who felt like you, could, you know, this white guy could play. He had to be the great white hope coming in, and um, I watched him. First game, first practice, I was like, played against him, I'm scoring, he scores, I score, he scores. Then it was like, he's so scoring on me even more. And I was like, I remember after practice, the first black person I could get to, I said, you know what? That freaking white guy can play right there. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was the birth and introduced me to, you never judge a book by its cover. And um, so here I was, this player, and I always say, God's a funny guy. He doesn't give me one of the best white players, but then he gives me Kevin McHale after that. So right. so, so yeah. I get two of the best white players ever to play the game in the history <laughs> of the game, playing together. So it was, it was just kind of funny to see that and to develop a relationship with Larry. We formed a great partnership on the court uh, because I was a great scorer. Uh, on the inside, and he was more of a passer and setting people up. And I learned that uh, at that time that, you know, I was better suited playing with him than playing against him or, or yeah, just trying to buck the system to say, hey, I'm the man. Yeah. Uh, Bill Fish walked up to me, our, our new head coach, uh, and said, asked me the first day of practice, you know who's going to guard the toughest guy, right? You seem like a pretty smart, smart guy. I'm like, 
I, I'm a lover. I'm not a fighter here. <laughs> and uh, But I end up having to take the assignment. He said, I am not sacrificing Larry uh, to guard the toughest guy every night. So I learned that I was going to have to be more defensive-minded than really offensive-minded. What was your style as a player overall? How would you characterize it? Um, I was a, I was a great scorer in the paint. Uh, you know, not a lot of people could score me. A lot of different moves around the basket. I was long. I was athletic. I was quick. Um, so I was a I I could score. And then I became. What a, was your go to? I had a little jump hook, spin, left hand, right hand around the basket. Reminds me a lot of white watching one of my favorite players who was from Charlotte at the time watching Bobby Jones play. Oh. Bobby Jones very much like that. Didn't have a lot of stuff from the outside, but had the, all the movement around the basket. Mm-hmm. And that's how the game was played mm-hmm. uh, during the 80s. It was a, a inside game, yeah. and then you passed it out. So it was a game which that fitted, it fit my, my style perfectly. I didn't know Larry Bird smoked cigarettes. <laughs> I was yep. okay. And drink beer. <laughs> well, I think I heard that. Drink part, beer and smoke cigarettes. Yeah. Winston's or whatever they were. Yeah. They, you know, yeah. After a game or like when? Like that was after just, the game. Well, what my, off times. Well, my first year in the league was that was surprising to me. Was my first game in the league. Guy who I idolized was JoJo White, mm-hmm. and on my first game in the league, I look across. At halftime, and JoJo's smoking a cigarette. I'm like, what? At halftime in the locker room. I'm like, and I wanted to tell the coach, and I looked up at the board, and Tommy Eisen was smoking a cigarette. (laughs) But Larry, yeah, Larry was a cigarette smoker Hmm. and um, beer drinker, you know, two fisted on them beers, man. It was, there was, it was, it was, it was just kind of fun being around him and uh, Kevin McHale and, and Robert Parrish. And so formed a great partnership with all these guys. And despite all those stars, you were the one who was the NBA Finals MVP in 1981. Played Houston. Uh-huh. And I averaged, I think it was like about 19 and, probably 19 and 10, something like that, right? And um, my game five, I was, um, a deciding game, one of the deciding games. I had twenty eight and fifteen mm. in the game with no three pointers. Uh, three pointer did it even exist? Three pointers started the, my my I want to say nineteen nineteen eighty. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris Ford, one of my teammates, made oh, the first yeah. one. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. In the NBA, but you never shot them. Basically, no, basically, ever, basically, right? because yeah. I think for my career, I I made one. Where Steph Curry, he makes a million. I have one to my credit. And in 1984, you won the NBA championship again, had 24 in the pivotal game seven. And that was the famous final where Magic and Larry played against each other. Yes, that was that was the I want to say that was the 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 first one. That was the birth of really the excitement of the NBA Mm -hmm. and people watching it. from coast to coast. Here comes Maxwell inside time. Tie game with 21 seconds. The Celtics have tied the Lakers. Played against my man James Worthy. You know that even yeah, today, right you know we yeah, yeah that we have these arc. We we go back and forth right now. He's an analyst for the Lakers, and yeah. me an analyst for it, and, and that hasn't died yet. 
um, you know, so to, to win that game was huge. What did you tell them beforehand? I've heard different stories as the, as the, the words used. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll use the, so use the, the, the real four words here. What, the real words. Yeah. Okay. The real words were, don't you worry about it because everybody was like standing around and I was talking to Danny Angie and my teammates. I said, don't you worry, worry about it. I want you to get on my back tonight. I'm a carrier. And everybody like, you are? <laughs> I said, yeah. I said, I'm the only finals MVP in this room. That was before Larry became a finals MVP. And uh, I had this game of 24, 8, and 8. Mm. And, um, and that was a game seven. And game right? seven. Clutch. Game seven in Boston. And and got a lot. And, you know, that was, those were the words everybody said. Normally, that's what they say. Just climb on my back, boys. But that, those weren't the actual, the actual uh, words. I thought you, it might be a little more colorful. Yeah, it yeah. was. Yeah, you know, if you meet me, it was it was very colorful. I A sailor would have blushed from time to time if Listen to me talk. Was that the pinnacle for you of your basketball career that night? I think it was obviously had to be a highlight. Um, but to win multiple championships, to be with the Celtics, to have your jersey later on retired by the yeah. Boston Celtics, um, to all my friends, the relationships that I've had over the years. So, I, But, yeah, that would be a highlight. That would definitely be a highlight. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. Cedric, let's switch gears for a second. And wasn't isn't it true that you were estranged from the Celtics for a while after your, I believe you played there eight years, mm-hmm. and then at some point something went wrong and you had to apologize to Red Arbach? Well, what happened was I had played there for eight years. My eighth year, um, we, we had won the championship in 84, beat the Lakers. The next year in 85, Red Arbach wanted to repeat. And uh, I got hurt. No fault of my own. Uh, was something wrong with my knee. And they felt like I could come back and play, and I couldn't. And I uh, came back, played just a few minutes in, you know, during the series. Essentially, didn't even play in the last game as we lost to the Lakers. And um, I got traded the next year. I got traded. And um, I had just signed a very nice contract. And um, so they felt that for whatever reason, I don't know why, how they came up with it, I was dogging it. And, um, and I even apologized to my teammates later on because I, I don't think I knew how to be woe is me. I'm not a woe is me person. Mm-hmm. So when I got hurt, I'm walking around the same way. I wasn't like, oh my God, I'm hurt. What am I going to do? And so I thought that they didn't think that I was hurt, but actually um, I got traded for Bill Walton. Uh, Bill Walton in 85 uh, came to the Celtics. 86, they won it. And um, I was with the Clippers. And um, Played with the Clippers for a couple of years. And um, then they wanted me to, by the time my career ended, they wanted me to come back to um, Boston. To um, And I said I was never coming back. But they they wanted me to come back. Uh, they were celebrating at that time. The Boston Garden was closing. Mm-hmm. So they had players back with their, um, you know, with a ticket of a game. And they would feature that player, oh. and they would introduce that player. 
and I came back and got a nice ovation. And Jan Volk, who was general manager of the team at the time, said, we'd like for you to come back and we'd like you to, you know, work for the team and also do radio and PR and all. We'd love for you to do that. And I was like, oh, man, it sounds great. Because at that time, I was just trying to find my way after I got through playing. Okay. And um, so <laughs> Jan turns to me and says, well, in order to get the job, you have to apologize to Red. <laughs> apologize to Red Arbeck for what? <laughs> I was the one who got traded. And so, and then to get the job, I went down to Washington, D.C. I always remember this. Went down to see Red. Red took me, and his wife was still living at that time, and Red took me in this little office and he put his arm around me and said, when you're, when you're young, sometimes you don't do smart things. And the next words came out of his mouth, I will always remember. And he said, I forgive you. <laughs> Give me for what? Oh, man, you, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> but learned at that time, shut your mouth, take the job and move on and so I've been broadcasting now for 26 years, but that was me going back essentially to uh, apologize to Red for something for me getting hurt. And you apologize. You're yeah. apologizing for yeah. for what having an injury. I was uh, apologizing for having what what people would say would be an injury right now, which you know yeah. guys right now have a high ankle sprain. They might be out for a year, but oh, yeah. you know I had I had torn, torn cartilage and meniscus and authorize everything going on in my knee and but they were so like look we want to win and we know if you play well then we can win I physically I couldn't play because I I was just a lot of uh stuff was going on in my knee so you it sounds like you almost went uh down to Washington and kissed the ring so to speak. I had to kiss the ring I had to kiss the ring to get the job and um, I guess yeah. it was worth it, though. Yeah. You're, you've yeah. been at Celtics ever since? Ever since. Been there yeah. now. This is my 26 years of broadcaster. You, as a player, got into a fight with Charles Barkley? Mm, a couple of fights with Charles Barkley. There was a uh, one. And there's one is you'll see the Larry Bird, Dr. J, as they grid the fight. And Larry. Uh, Dr. J has him around the neck. Well, I was standing there right beside uh, Larry at the time. And Larry and Dr. J kind of squared up. And Charles Barkley grabs Larry from behind, holds his arms down. And he, Dr. J punches Larry in the face like three times with them big hands. Like, oh, my God. But I got Charles Barkley around the neck. I'm trying to, you know. MMA trying to choke him out, and he was so strong, he just flung me, and I, I went flying all the way to the other side of the court. But that was one time. But then I got traded, and I tell my buddy Norm Nixon, I said, No, um, Barkley had a, a habit when he was rolling, he was one of the best in the NBA at that time, he was rolling. And um, but I told him, I said, If you took a charge on him, he would almost in disdain, like throw like throw the ball at you like you were, you know, like you were garbage. So I told my buddy Norm Nixon, who I played with, who ended up with the Clippers, I said, Norm, if he throws me, throws and hits me with this ball, I'm about to f*** him up out here. <laughs> and so Norm like, nah, you ain't got nothing. You're not, not. So I take a charge, 
He does exactly what I said. I take a charge. He throws the ball down on me in disrespect. I try to jump up quick, and he, he pushes me back down. But he pushes me down, so my teammates are holding me. I break away, and now I am just whacking on him. I'm like a whack-a-mole, you know, on him, you know. And uh, and the, the funny thing about it, we played them the next – I get thrown out of this game, and I didn't get fined because Charles was doing that to a lot of people. So the referee, like, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't Cedric's fault. It wasn't his fault. So you didn't get fined. You didn't get fined. Got thrown out, huh. but didn't get fined. Who, in your opinion, is the best player ever in the NBA? Hakeem Olajuwon, <clears throat> and Hakeem Olajuwon because he dominated the game better than anybody's ever dominated the game. Wilt was amazing, but Wilt would choose what he wanted to do. One time I want to score, one time I want to, you know, play defense. But Akeem was, he played, he dominated offensively and defensively for a three, four-year span like nobody else did. Mm -hmm. Michael was a great defensive player individually, Mm -hmm. but he didn't dominate the way Akeem dominated the game. These moves, he was, Akeem was unbelievable. And I played with him only about a year and a half and um, just had, just watched him and marveled. I saw him get a game against Seattle, 46 and 28 and 7. One of the few guys in the NBA who's ever had a quadruple double. So I just so don't put him before Michael, LeBron. You play before all those guys because he dominated the game. The way, and I think that only people who you know say that are people who play with him. Mm-hmm. You'll hear a bunch so, of you yeah. hear a bunch of rocket people say that. And it's no offense at all. I think Michael is unbelievable. Yeah. But you know, I, I, like I said, I'll ask you a question. My question to you will be this: I, I'm building a Mount Rushmore right now, and I do this for my podcast all the time. Your Mount Rushmore. Who are you going to put on your Mount Rushmore in sports? This is in the back of your house. Got four people. You can pick. In sports, living or dead? Hey, I don't care. This is your Mount Rushmore. Mm, My personal Mount Rushmore. Your personal Mount Rushmore. Okay. Uh, Well, Roger Staubach, because he was, I was a Dallas Cowboys fan when I was little. Roger the Dodger. So Roger the Dodger would be on there. That, if we're talking personal preference. This is your. And also kind of the man he was. This is your Mount Rushmore. Okay. Okay. This is is a question from the Cedric Maxwell podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Which is an excellent podcast, by the way. You got to check that out. Uh, Michael. Michael. I was in college at Chapel Hill at the, you know, uh, overlapped him with a year. And so. Not only that connection, but I just think he's, he's you know, extraordinary. Steph, probably. Um, and again, I'm picking guys who I sort of have a little bit of a connection this is to. Your, I'm not Rushmore. I don't yeah. care. <laughs> like, You're well, I'm, not, I'm just explaining. I'm not apologizing. Steph Curry, absolutely. He's a, he's a, a spectacular, but I'm also picking great guys, right? Okay. So. Steph, and then let's see, a fourth one? Mm. That fourth one could be several people for me. Let me think. Um, I'm going to say, given where we live, Sam Mills. Sam Mills, um, I've covered the Panthers from the very beginning. That's so cool. 
and and you know if they what, start, what, what was the thing he said put in work what was the, what was the, keep pounding keep, keep pounding, pounding keep right. pounding the motto still here and he was probably you know he wasn't the best player that the Panthers ever had that was Steve Smith or mm-hmm. you could argue Cam Newton but or maybe Luke Keekley but Sam Mills was maybe the most important player they had because he he kind of began the he was there you know kind of their life force i guess yeah. and the key pounding will you know that'd be there forever i mean wow. that's their that's their motto who is the best boston celtic ever would you say russell 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 Russell. Hard Russell. to go wrong Russell. with Bill Russell. Russell has twelve yeah. championship rings. He won. He won yeah. eight in a row. Uh, he won as a player. He was a player coach. I, that's I mean, I mean, mind. he was yeah. the first black coach in the history of the NBA. Mm-hmm. So Russell, by far. Now my my Rushmore was, I went with um, Muhammad Ali, uh, Tiger Woods, one of my favorites, Willie Mays, yeah. and then I go off the board. I went with the best female athlete of all time, Serena Williams. So it always changes. Shoot, I like and, your four, maybe better yeah, than mine. And, and you know, and, and the funny <laughs> thing about it, I asked our guy, one of my guys, yeah. I had him on my podcast, Bakari Sellers. Okay. Mm-hmm. Who is down in, in, in Columbia. Uh, you see him a lot on CNN. I asked him this question. He takes my question, he asked Barack Obama, and I don't get credit. Uh, <laughs> I was like, I didn't take that. And uh, I saw, he I plagiarized your question. I, I saw Bakari last, uh, this summer, uh, when I was down there talking about my book in uh, South Carolina, and he says, uh, I said, man, you didn't even, he said, oh, whenever I see POTUS again, I'm going to have to tell him that was your question. So I was like, oh. Don't hold your breath. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. Well, Cedric, you've been so nice to give us all this time. I just have a couple more things I'd like to uh, ask you. As well. I want to stay, man. This oh, okay. is, this well, is good. good stuff. You well, just keep, keep going. We're going to keep going there. Uh, so this is a little more serious of a question. What would you have told yourself at, at your age now? You're 67, I believe, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So what would you have told Cedric Maxwell at, say, around age early 20s, 24? What advice would you give that young man right now if you could? Invest in, in land. Buy land in Charlotte. <laughs> 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 Get to hell with Johnny Harris and all them people. <laughs> Buy land in Charlotte. I would have definitely told him that. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I would have told... Uh, but. But Citra Maxwell pretty much has done what he's wanted to do. Mm. He's lived a, a great life. I can't tell him to smell the roses because he always does. Mm. I guess this question is it gets to also sort of one that I sometimes ask, and that is what what do you regret? I have none. I have none. I've lived a I lived an amazing life. I mean, if there's one regret, maybe not meeting the Ford Small. Uh, might be the one regret, but other than that, it's been an amazing life. Uh, Manny Maxwell is one of, was was my hero because he took me. He, he made me. I told him that um, uh, when I found out he was he was on his deathbed, and he I never had told him about you know being adopted and how I was so proud of him being my dad, mm. and uh, you know he, I'm the man 
I became the man I was because of him. But Manny never let me down. His, his, his words, I always remember his words to me. He said, Cedric, glad I could help. Really? <laughs> Dude, this, is that what we get out of that? I just poured my heart out to you. <laughs> I'm half, I, yeah, let me pick those groceries up. Glad I could help. What did he do for a living? Man. He was a Marine. Oh, He's a Marine for 20, 26 years, but regretting um, telling Cedric Maxwell what to do. He's enjoyed so much. He has great kids, great family, great memories. UNC Charlotte, uh, you know, Boston Celtics. I mean, I don't even know how you... Like I said, this is for me. It's a storybook. It was a, a kid who was born out of wedlock, became a a, a star basketball player, who's lived a, a fortunate life, great love from his family, great kids, great environment, uh, professionally to, you know, to be with the Celtics to win multiple championships, to be a Finals MVP in the in the NBA. As I as I like to tell, um, as I told um, Draymond Green, where I had a kind of argument with him about yeah. something, where I was telling him, I said he would have been knocked out if he'd been playing during the '80s, the way he's done things. But but in and then I was talking to somebody. It was like, let me explain something to you. There's only been 33 Finals MVP, and damn it, I'm one of them. Yeah. And so if you think about that, and the, and and then to have your jersey retired by the greatest professional basketball franchise around. There's it's not a lot that I can. That's pretty good for a not, kid out of Kinston. Yeah, out of Kinston, you yeah. know, born, born Cedric Folks at the time, then Cedric Maxwell, then Cedric Cornbread Maxwell. So, yeah. yeah. So, I, matter of fact, that's one thing I think that I'm, I was thinking about possibly doing is hyphenate my name now. And, and putting folks in it really? someplace. Folks slash Maxwell. Yeah. Was sort of the honor. Yeah, yeah. The honoring that that life that I never never knew. You're um and it's your longevity as a uh, radio analyst is also unusual that mm-hmm. you've done that for so long. Uh, you had one misstep in 2007, mm-hmm. I think, with Violet Palmer, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and apologized for that. Oh, and I love then, telling that story. Yeah, well, one tell us that one. Oh, the story was a great yeah. story. We were in Houston, and my broadcast partner and I, we were talking about Violet Palmer doing so well. And and Tommy Heinsohn at that time was our, you know, Tommy Heinsohn was a, a television personality. I was the radio side. And I knew Tommy hated any uh, official. So she makes one bad call. In my Tommy Heinsohn voice, I go, ah, ah. Go back to the kitchen, make me some bacon and eggs. And I didn't think anything about it because I was imitating Tommy. It was Tommy. imitation of Heinz. It was imitating, it. Yeah. imitating Tommy. So I did not think anything about yeah. it until the next day I got the Jeff, Jeff, um, our, our PR guy says, we're writing an apology for you. Apology for what? What you said about Violet Palmer. I said, what did I say about Violet Palmer? <laughs> I didn't even... And then he said, oh, you said the thing about bacon there. I said, that was, and then talking to, I ended up apolog- apologizing to her. The yes. context mm-hmm. was, was was something that, that came out. So for me, I, I that story to me was if there was, I didn't regret that, but 
I was more appreciative that it was done, that it happened then instead of now. Because the internet. <laughs> You're right about we, that. Last thing, Cedric, just um, as you think about, I ask people this sometimes, what advice you might offer to others or what advice you do offer to others in basketball camps or when you speak uh, yourself uh, to, to live a fulfilling life? What do you say? Stay true to yourself, your beliefs. Be confident in who you are. Be dedicated to your craft. Understand that you have a very, we all have a very small window to operate in. And try to be, bring out the best in others. And the biggest thing I always think about is humility. Mm -hmm. Just being humble. Uh, that to me is the, the thing as, as a basketball player or as a say famous person that has always been I've always said my biggest my biggest strength is the fact that I can make people comfortable around me by laughing at myself <laughs> and because when you do that you disarm people <laughs> like well, if he can tell a joke about himself then you know, I have yeah. no problem. So that's what I do when I do my public speaking. We, we talk on those same terms about who I am and, and laugh about myself. And that takes it down 10 notches when you get ready to speak. So that would be that would be my advice to anybody. And we live in a great country, which allows us opportunities for people who are like Barack Obama, who was born, you know, out of wedlock and whatever happened to him, become the president of the United States. I think that was the greatest thing that maybe happened to me was the fact that I can now tell my child when Barack Obama became president, that probably one of my happiest moments, that he could do anything he wanted, regardless of his color. Whereas I did not feel like that. I, I didn't think in my lifetime that I would have a black president, except, you know, except when I saw Samuel Jackson on TV or somebody right. <laughs> portraying Quite that black president. Yes, but yes, I, yes. I, Morgan Freeman was always a president, but I never thought. But when Barack Obama became the president, that was the one that I almost, almost brought a tear to my eye thinking about, you know, people of color and what they went through and what where he is to, to be the most powerful man in the world. And he was a person of color. That's a great story. A good place to end. Uh, that's Cedric Cornbread Maxwell. We just appreciate you being with us so much today, Cedric. I'm Scott Fowler, and this is Sports Legends of the Carolinas. Thank you again, Cedric. Thanks so much for listening to Sports Legends of the Carolinas, a production of the Charlotte Observer. This show is produced by Lou May Ali Sally, Jeff Siner, and Cotta Stevens. The sports editor of the Charlotte Observer is Lydia Craver. And the executive editor is Raina Cash. Davin Coburn is McClatchy's director of audio. For lots more sports content and to continue supporting this kind of work, please visit charlotteobserver.com and consider a digital subscription. And connect with me on Twitter at Scott underscore Fowler or email at sfowler at charlotteobserver.com. See you next time.